0: Good evening. Welcome to Regen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you love us so much that uh, you sent your only son to die for our sins so that we can have a relationship with you. We ask, Lord, for your spirit to fill us as we open up First Samuel chapter 13, and that you would speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever seen a football team start out well and then just kind of stagger after they started out well? And of course, you uh, Cal fans have. Well, how about the rest of you? And, I, and I'm not even going to bring up the Raider fan because the Raider, you know, the Raiders don't even start out well, so you can't even. Don't get mad. I, I'm, I'm Raider fan light. So, what causes that staggering? What causes you know that that good start and then they? Uh, I guess I started out the sermon pretty bad, or I got booze and stuff. Or have you ever seen something that, that was just done in a panic, that was just done kind of because of stress, and and it caused hurt in a ministry, or it caused hurt in a business? And this is what <clears throat> we're going to be seeing tonight uh, in today's study. And coming out of chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, you, you know, we would think that things were going to get better for Team Israel, that, uh, you know, they just won this battle against the ammonites and so you know how, how can things be bad you know they just defeated them so so you start to thinking um yeah you know, things might be going in a good trajectory so they might not go bad but they go bad pretty quick right they go bad really quick in chapter from verse or chapter 12 to chapter 13 and then the text tonight it'll help us see how how crisis how crisis can reveal whether we choose to live by faith or if we're choosing to live uh, by trusting in a religion. And so there's a there's a difference between trusting in religion and trusting in faith. And, and in the eyes of God, it's, it's huge. There's no fooling God, uh, whether we're living a life of faith or if we're just living a religious life. And he knows whether we're living a life of religiosity or if we're living a life of faith. And the way that we conduct our lives are, are very telling in, in the ways that we choose to live, whether it is a life of faith or a life of religiosity. And what we're going to see in this chapter is the decline of Saul. And this portrayal of Saul's decline is going to be written about in chapters 13, 14, and 15. But what we're going to see in chapter 13 are are some warning signs, warning signs that Saul is on the wrong track. He's He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And what we're going to see during Saul's reign can actually be applied to us. And one of those warning signs is that there is an apprehension in success. And I'm going to further develop that and explain that further through verses 1 through 4. So let's start there. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, and this might be confusing to some, and depending on your translation, most translations have different numbers in the place of Saul's age and the length of the reign. But in Hebrew, his age is given, and the reign listed in Hebrew is two years. So the best scholarship out there proposes that chapter 13 happened two years into Saul's reign, which is hinting that this crucial event, this crucial downfall took place early on in Saul's reign reign that damaged it. So that's what's important. So don't get too caught up into like this many years or that many years. The crucial thing is that he's messing up early on in his leadership. Okay? So verse 2, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel... Two thousand were with Saul in Michmash, <clears throat> and in the mountains of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan and Gabeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it, <clears throat> said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an admonition to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. The text tells us that Saul is highly organized militarily, and he may have been organized in other areas of his government as well, but our story is primarily concerned with military issues. And it was militarily concerned because that's what Israel wanted. They wanted a leader precisely to protect them from any military threat, to lead them in that way. So how does Saul have his military arranged? We have this uh, map here. And um, I don't think you can see what well, you can't see. So the Dead Sea is this bottom body of water. And to your left is Jerusalem. So let's use that as a, kind of a, a center point there. And so Michmash is, is where these 2,000 soldiers are and where Saul is. And that's um, seven miles northeast of Ju, uh, Jerusalem. <clears throat> and Gabeah, where Jonathan was with his 1,000 guys, is about three miles north of Jerusalem. So here you have Jerusalem. Here you have Uh, Jonathan and then you have Saul and then Jonathan but Jonathan is the one that attacked and he defeated the garrison of the Philistines who were at Geba now where's Geba Geba is one to two miles southwest of Michmash so it's closer to Michmash than it is to where Jonathan was right but do you notice who started the military confrontation it was Jonathan even though he was further away And Saul's eldest son, according to chapter 14, verse 49, it was Jonathan who brought about this crisis. And and this compelled Saul to send the word to gather the nation together because he knew trouble was coming. And you notice that it was Jonathan who attacked the garrison in verse 3, but Saul was reported to have done it in verse 4. So Saul took credit for this small victory and he knew the Philistines wouldn't take kindly to this defeat. So he gathers his troop at Gilgal, which is east. It's closer to the Jordan River uh, because he knew that the Philistines weren't just going to be sitting down taking on this loss. So why did Jonathan attack? Why did he attack the Philistines at Geba? Saul gets the credit. But why wasn't the one to attack and defeat the Philistine garrison Saul? Why is it his son? And we're going to see in the next chapter how Jonathan is a leader that has initiative. He, he wants to move forward. He wants to take risks, but Saul doesn't. You know, why doesn't Saul initiate? Well, maybe it's, it has to do something with these previous instructions laid out by Samuel uh, back in chapter 10 to wait seven days. And so maybe he instructed Jonathan to attack because he felt like he couldn't. Uh, We don't know. But perhaps it's one of those warning signs that the king who God called to be king isn't acting like a king. And sure, Jonathan, Jonathan won that small victory and the Philistine garrison was defeated, but it wasn't by Saul. So here we see this apprehension on the part of Saul because of success. Success by his son. You know, back when I worked in investment management before I was in ministry... We, we used to get these performance bonuses, and um, sometimes rather large bonuses. And it was based off of our investment portfolio's performance. And so most of the people would get them, and if you didn't get them, you, you knew you were on thin ice. You knew you were on, in trouble. But then if you did get one, if you got a small one, you got a similar message. It was, it was a negative message, right? Uh, it, it, was, it was like getting no bonus. Because you knew how you ranked in the company. And, and so if you got a bonus of you know, just several thousand dollars or something, and, and there was some success in that you got a bonus, but it was kind of a bad bonus because it's a small bonus. It, which means if you don't change, if things don't change, then um, you should be looking for another job. So the bonus was a good thing, but it could also be a bad thing. And it was a warning sign, even though it's a good thing, a relatively good result, a, a warning sign of things to come, just like this victory was for Saul. It was it was a victory, it was a small victory, but it wasn't a good sign. It wasn't it wasn't the right servant who brought about that success. So there there's an apprehension in the success. And and we can be guilty of this in our day too. You you look at the Christian family, families where women are, are leading most of the spiritual development of the home in, in worship, in prayer, in, in study of the Word, and where the Christian father, the Christian husband, just doesn't do much of that. And I'm not saying that Christian women don't have a role in that. Obviously, they do. I'm not saying that Christian mothers and wives shouldn't do that. They should. They, they should be intricately and intimately involved in their family's spiritual maturity to, to becoming more Christ-like And a family's faith should be encouraged and nourished by mom. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that it shouldn't just be mom. right? It shouldn't just be mom's burden to do those things. And I've witnessed a lesser role from Christian men in their families as an initiator of prayer, as an initiator of worship, as an initiator of the study of the word. And it's as if mom has taken on most, if not all, of the burden to nurture faith in the home. And I'm not saying that mom is the wrong servant because women have a role in that, but they don't have all of the responsibility in that. You know, where's Saul? Where's the man? Right? The kids we serve in our community, um, a lot of them come from single mom homes. Where's dad? And, and if, if, if it is a two-parent home, um, there's a role that we play, dads. We need to model prayer for our families, with our families. And we need to teach our children how to pray. We need to instruct them on how to worship, how to study the Bible. We need to live Christ-like lives to show them how to live. And it's not just mom's role. And our kids need to know that God has a place in our life. And how tragic it would be if our kids grew up and they couldn't recall that that dad prayed with them or worshipped with them or, or taught them something about God's word. And it's not just mom's burden, even though she's excellent at what she's doing. And may we not be a servant who is not faithful to God's call as a father, as a husband, who is not faithful to the call that the Lord has placed on us to our families. And some of you may be thinking, oh, the w- women can be guilty of this also. Yes, that's true. But... in most cases that I've personally witnessed and that my friends who are in ministry have personally witnessed in doing ministry in our community, it's the lack of involvement or even worse, the complete absence of the involvement of dad. Very rarely is it the absence of mom in some cases, but very rarely. It's most of the time it's the absence of dad. And we've been entrusted by God to be guardians of our children There's a leadership role we play in the spiritual maturity of our children and if we're not fully engaged, it's a serious warning sign that we're on the wrong track. And another success we may have that causes apprehension on our part uh, may be Christian schools or or Sunday schools. You know, some folks have sent or are sending or are thinking about sending their kids to Christian schools and then we have kids in in the morning service that parents send their kids to the Sunday schools down there and <clears throat> and if we're not mindful of our roles as parents, we, we can become lax in our responsibility to instruct and discipline our children in godly ways because we, re, we rely too heavily on the school, on the Christian school, or on the Sunday school to do the things that we are to be doing. And the school is meant to be a Jonathan, right? But it's not the primary responsibility of the school, of the Sunday school, to provide godly direction and instruction for your kids, it's you, parents, guardians, uncles, aunts, grandparents, you you guys. And schools can be doing great in whatever they're doing and how they're nurturing our kids' spiritual development, but they are to reinforce what we are already doing as parents. And just because the school is successful in growing our kids spiritually, it doesn't mean that they've taken over the primary responsibility as your child's spiritual guide, mentor, So don't be apprehensive in the successes because the school is doing well that you hold back or because something else is doing good like your spouse is doing well spiritually and then you hold back. Don't be apprehensive just because you see other successes there. You have to push forward. Be a better support there. And and there's still something we have to do as parents. And be careful that there's an apprehension in success. That just because you see something good that you don't push forward, we still have a role. In verse 5 Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves and thickets, and rocks and holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, as for Saul. He was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Then he waited seven days, <clears throat> according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. Things are looking pretty bad. And the the Philistine army was which mu- was much larger. And we see from verse six that the people hid. In verse seven, we see that the people fled, <clears throat> and those who didn't were trembling. And in verse eight, we see that people were scattered because Samuel didn't come within seven days that Samuel set. Now, why is it important that Samuel arrive anyway? Why is that an important thing? Well, Samuel is the one close to God, and, and having this great man of God intercede for, for you in prayer before an important battle is significant. And You look at what happened in Israel in the previous chapters when Samuel prayed for them. Right? There's, this, this in, there's these victories that happened when Samuel interceded for them, when he prayed for them. And there's this interesting thing about the time it took for Samuel's arrival. And you notice the amount of time that is spoken of in First Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, um, because this length of time has a, has a great deal of importance. So let's go back to that verse. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. Now this meeting at Gilgal where Saul was to precede and then wait seven days had, had not taken place yet. They had been at Gilgal to renew the kingdom, but for a time when when Saul went ahead uh, seven days to wait for instructions on what to do, that hasn't taken place yet. And this was part of Saul's original instruction. This was part of Saul's calling to do this. And Saul was to be subservient to God, even though he was a king. And Saul seemed to have been given this blueprint on how to handle crisis, uh, specifically fit for his kingly needs, and he was to wait seven days for God's prophet Samuel. Because God was going to use Samuel to deliver to him uh, the the instructions as to what he was going to do for the the kingdom. And the prophet was going to come, he was going to pray, and then he was going to give divine guidance as to what Israel was to do. And King Saul was to be submissive to God's word through Samuel. And this seemed to be why Saul assembled the people at Gilgal. But Saul didn't wait for the complete seven days. He, He waited for the seventh day, but he didn't wait all day on the seventh day he, he jumped the gun gun on that day it, the day wasn't over yet and in first samuel chapter 10 verse 8 samuel told saul seven days you shall wait till i come to you saul was to wait until samuel came on the scene right no earlier don't do anything wait till i come and we'll see later in chapter 13 verse 10 that samuel does show up on the seventh day now, you put yourself in Saul's shoes for a moment. If you had thousands, you know, this this countless enemy out there, this military that was against you and you had this morally depleted military that that some of them were just fleeing, wouldn't you be kind of in a panic too? People were scattering, your troops were leaving, they were deserting and the ones with you were scared. We'd be panicked as well, wouldn't we? We'd be stressed out as well. Verse 9, so Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now what did Saul do in his panic? In this stressful, he was under pressure situation, what did he do? He offered the burnt offerings. He offered the peace offerings. What did First Samuel chapter 10, verse 8 instruct him to do? You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and I surely, I will come to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you to show you what you should do. Saul was to wait. He was to wait. Samuel would offer the burnt offerings. Samuel would offer the peace offerings. And he would tell Saul what to do through God. First Samuel chapter 7 verses 9 through 10. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. You see, you notice that when when Samuel sacrificed and prayed to God, that, that the Lord delivered And Saul may have been the king, but it was it was God's prophet, God's priest, that was going to intercede on behalf of Israel and give Saul the necessary guidance from God. And Samuel was probably going to be used to show Saul that that the victory comes through trusting in God, through God's instructions, and that God would divinely give guidance to Saul as to how to win this battle. But he didn't wait. And Saul's part was to faithfully obey by waiting and see what the Lord was going to show Samuel. And then Samuel was going to deliver those instructions. And, and the instructions about procedures at Gilgal was, was given way back then. It was given way back then in early on in Saul's leadership. And it was a key part of his calling to wait. Wait seven days until Samuel comes. So why did Saul jump the gun? And I see a couple of reasons why, and there may be more. But one of the reasons I see is that he just panicked. freaked out, right? The text clearly shows that there was plenty to be panicked about. Saul was faced with this superior enemy force. His own military was dwindling, and and the morale was dwindling with the people that were existing there. So it's understandable that Saul had reason to panic. And on top of that, Samuel didn't come until the very end. And Saul was worried that he and his military force would not be spiritually covered. But the message was clear. Samuel was to offer the peace offerings, the burnt offerings, and then give Saul the necessary information he would need. But it appears that Saul either panicked or he wanted to make sure that all his ducks were in a row religiously. Which which brings me to the second possible reason he jumped the gun. Saul Saul may have been seeking some type of security or some type of control in the situation instead of just crying out to God. He wanted to do the proper religious things, but he didn't do what God instructed him to do. It's as if Saul was seeking control of the situation by performing some proper religious act rather than humbly submitting in faith, humbly submitting in obedience to what he knew he was supposed to do. Verse 10. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will come, now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And what we see here is the beginning of one of the toughest situations presented in the book of Samuel. And the reason why Saul was rejected seems... Like a pretty petty thing, right? doesn't it? He offered offerings, especially when we we compare it to David. when we look at David who uh, who's the man after God's own heart that was mentioned here in verse 14, but David had much more obvious mistakes than Saul did. but Saul's actions made Samuel especially upset because it seemed that Saul wanted to make sure they were religiously covered in verse 12. The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. He disobeyed God to accomplish these religious acts to God. And he was more concerned with religious ritual than he was with simple obedience. And he didn't have a heart after God. That's why they had to look for somebody else, right? It says, the Lord has sought for Himself a man after his own heart. Saul didn't have that heart. And Samuel tells Saul in verse 13, You have not kept the commandments of your, of the Lord, your God, which He commanded you. And something that will be very clear to us in the next few chapters is that Saul is an extremely religious person. Very religious. So you're saying, do you, do you mean we can do some religious things and, and actually be displeasing to God? Yes. And most of us probably know people who are really, really religious, but they really don't know God. They really don't trust in God. They're just religious. And what seems to be this petty thing to some of us has really serious repercussions. What seemed logical and rational for Saul to do caused him to pay an extremely high price. And we can see from verses 11 and 12 that Saul had his reasons for doing what he did. He was worried as his military's morale was depleting and and they were scattering. And he was worried because the Philistines continued to organize their military at Michmash and they could strike at any time. You see, Michmash was a a key location. That's why Saul started there in verse 2. And now uh, the Philistines have taken over that position. And what Saul was essentially rationalizing and saying was, Hey, Samuel, you know, there are times that I need to act as I see fit. I'm the king. And I I can't always submit to regimen, Samuel. I need to be able to do things in emergency situations. I, I need to do things when I see fit. And I shouldn't have to always submit to God's plans. See, he worked it out in his head. He rationalized in his head. He reasoned his actions. And it made sense to him to be disobedient to God. But his actions didn't change the fact that God told him to wait until Samuel returned for instruction. And Saul had his logic. Saul had his reasoning. Saul had his rationale. But it missed the point of obedience. Samuel told Saul in verse 13, You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which he commanded you. And the high price he paid was losing the right to pass along the kingship to his heirs. In verse 14, But now your kingdom shall not continue. And he didn't lose his job as king, but he did lose the right to pass on the kingship to his sons and to his sons' sons, and he lost any chance of starting a kingly dynasty, which is a serious blow to Saul, especially in that culture and time. And you notice how he initially tried to blame Samuel in verse verse 11, And that you did not come within the days appointed. He did. He showed up on the seventh day. He probably didn't show up at the time that he wanted, but Saul showed up on the seventh day. Saul just didn't listen to God's instructions. And we can come up with stories with why we did something to, to cover our high knees and have our rationale to reason on why we did certain things. But regardless of the excuses we have not to follow God, we need to get to the heart of the issue, to have the heart to have a heart after God's own heart, and of why we don't submit to God's word. You know, Saul's rationale seems reasonable. Seems logical. But the root of the problem is a rebellious heart. And we can be rebellious in our reasoning, in our rationalizing, in our logic. And you look at dating relationships. A Christian couple is dating and they've reasoned together that it's less expensive to move in with one another before they're married. And it makes sense. The Bay Area is very expensive, right? That and and the reasoning I've heard this a lot. We're going to get married anyway, and um, so we might as well just do it earlier. Or or they say like, oh, I'm I risk the breaking up because um, he's so adamant about it that um, he he doesn't want to be together if we don't move in together. And so all this rationale, all this logic, it's it's reasonable, it's understandable given those circumstances. And the logic makes sense, but it just doesn't jive with Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Or it doesn't jive with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19-20. through 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And we can reason our way into doing things, but it's a rebellious heart towards God's word. Or how about prayer? How we reason to ourselves as to why we don't pray. But you look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 6, and Jesus said, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. If we're Jesus' disciples, Jesus assumes we'll pray. There's an assumption there, right? In both verses 5 and 6. When you pray, it's assumed we will pray. That we will seek the Lord's will. That we will seek His face. That we will seek His presence in our life. But we make excuses and we give reasons to our rebellion. We tell ourselves and others that we, we just don't have time. We're just too busy. You know, too, too much school. Too much work. Too much life. Whatever. Too much video games. Whatever it is. Or that we're not good at it. Because we can't focus on it. I got ADD or I can't can't focus on things. I can't do it. Or, Or that we're just not encouraged enough by our spouse or our friends or we're just too tired. But we're expected to pray. Jesus said, when you pray. Not if you pray. When you pray. We are to go to God in prayer if we are His disciples, but we reason as to why we don't. And we might have a logical reason. But what's at the heart? Do we have a heart After God's own heart, or is it rebellion? We need to be able to recognize our rebellion in our reasoning, in our logic, in our rationalizing. And you take a look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Do you see all the reasons in there? Do you see all the logic? Do you see all the rationalizing in there? All of those reasons were used to, to build this rational, logical case to why Adam and Eve did what they did. But you know what? It's all irrelevant. All their thoughts are irrelevant because God told them not to eat of it. It doesn't matter all this other stuff. Good for food, pleasant eyes, desirable to make wine. doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. He said no. So we need to be careful. We do not reason our way into Rebellion. In verse 15, Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about six hundred men. Samuel took off. He bolted, right? He He didn't stay to tell Saul what to do. No instruction from God. Saul is all by himself, without any direction from God. And here we have religious Saul, who did this religious thing, thought that it was... The right thing to do, but his religiosity, it cost him the presence of God's prophet, which means it cost him the help of God. And what mattered to Saul was this religious act and having a religious observance, but prophetic guidance didn't matter to him as much. Religion mattered to Saul. Religious acts mattered to Saul. Having religious rituals properly performed were important to Saul, but the obedience to God's Word and His instructions, not so much. Saul simply did not obey the Word of the Lord. And so we see where rebellion leads, no matter how much we try to reason to ourselves that what we're doing is right, what we're doing is okay, that God will understand. And we see how we can be rebellious in our logic, in our reasoning, in our rationale. And this is just another warning sign of some bad things to come for Saul, and as well as for us. You know, It's a warning sign to us. If we're, if we're starting to reason to ourselves why we should be doing something, knowing that the Word of the Lord says a certain thing, and yet we try to reason to ourselves to do something else. This is a pretty dark chapter. It's a bleak day in Israel's history, just like in chapters five through seven. And just like in chapters five through seven, you notice that Israel is fearful, has no courage, it's is trembling. Verse six verse sixteen. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gabeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned unto the road to Ophrah to the land of Shual, another company turned to the road to Beth Horon, and another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboam, Toward the wilderness. Samuel is is gone. And Israel's territories are being raided. And you see how far the Philistines have marched into Israel territory. They've taken over Michmash. Where in verse 2, that's where Saul was. And and that's where Saul was stationed. And the Philistines used Michmash as an assembling base to send raiders to, to Ophrah which was to the north. It's a road leading to the north. To Beth Haron, which was to the west. And Zebulun to the southeast. They're, they're going at will. They're going wherever they want to go. There's no one to to fight against them, to resist against them. And so we see that Saul's religiosity, it didn't work. His, his burnt offerings, his peace offerings, they, they, they were powerless to stop the Philistines. They're just walking all over Israel. And people in the Israeli military, they're taken off. There's no courage. There's no one fighting back. Israel couldn't do anything to stop the Philistines from plundering their lands and doing whatever they wanted to do because they were just spiritually, mentally defeated. Nothing they could do. But then to add salt to the wound, we, we come to these next verses where they physically couldn't do anything either. Verse 19. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Lest Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshares, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattock, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Now why in the world are blacksmiths mentioned out of all people? Blacksmiths. Well, iron was a fairly new invention back in this day. So it was the beginning of the Iron Age. And we know that iron weapons are far superior to bronze weapons or wood weapons. And Philistia wanted to control the advanced military technology of the day. Not so much different from today. Right, And it's just a part of military strategy. It's just a way to ensure national security. It's been done throughout history. The Philistines had this monopoly on producing iron and on iron working. And the only ones who had swords or spears in Israel were Jonathan and Saul. So we have Israel's military equipped with farming tools. And things they just made into makeshift weapons. And even those farming tools had to be taken to the Philistines to get sharpened. And they had to pay the Philistines to sharpen those tools. And all their blacksmiths were gone. And who knows what happened to them? Maybe the Philistines abducted all of them as part of this military strategy or or to help them with their iron-working monopoly. Don't know. And we see that the Philistines really had the upper hand here. There was no way for the Israelites to fight they didn't have any formal military weapons, which is a tactic that is still done in, in countries today who oppress people that don't have weapons. And if only the Israel, Israelites were, you know, as innovative to use their farm tools like, like ninjas. Right? I, I mean, come on, Plowshare? That's a big old blade. And a mattock is a pickaxe. And they had axes and sickles. I mean, that's enough for a ninja. And there are lots of weapons started out by farm tools. I'm going to go on this tangent here cuz can you show that slide? Those are all weapons that were used to be that used to be farm tools. And so I'm a ninja. So that's why I'm kind of excited about this. So like a bow staff they used to just be carrying baskets, right? But they now use it for. Or a saw, you know, that metal thing. They used to use that to furrow the ground. Or a nunchaku, that stick with the little chain in mean, it. They used to use that to take the grains off of stalks. Or, um, what else? A tanfa, that thing, that wood thing that was, it was used to move millstones. See, all this stuff, you know, ninjas would have been all right back in that day. But we're talking about Israelites. So they're all destitute. Now, off the tangent. Back to the story. So the author of Samuel is showing us how difficult a dilemma Israel faced. Now Israel faced this superior enemy force and they faced superior weapons and and the worst part of it was that their king was, was into religious observances but not so much into God. Yet Israel's greatest source of help is God. And there's hope even in this helplessness. Maybe not so much in chapter 13, but if we read on, we'll, we, we'll be able to see that. And the book of Samuel has instructed us that faith and obedience are how we are to deal with God, not being religious. Do you recall religious Eli and how he and his sons Hophni and Phinehas were dealing with the ark? And we see how religious that they were. And, and so now we see how religious Saul is. And, and so these are examples of religion, but they're not examples of faith. And on the other side of religion, we have Hannah, who who prayed in faith and obeyed by keeping her promise and received the help of deliverance of God, because God blessed her with the son Samuel, and she kept her promise to dedicate him to be a temple servant. And then we have Eli, who was concerned religiously, but who was not obedient in the discipline of his sons. And when faith and good teaching were required of him and his sons, they, they lacked those things, and they were unable to help Israel when the country needed them to help them. And because they were religious, they were defeated. And they placed their faith in these religious articles like the ark rather than placing their faith in God. And we saw that the leadership of Eli and his sons was was judged by God back in chapters 5-7. through And here we have Saul. Saul was successful when God directed him through his prophet Samuel and when Saul was spirit-led. But it seems that Saul has moved from being spirit-led to more being religiously-led. And he sacrifices before battle, but it's more about going through the religious motions. It's more about the superstition about what the offering will do, rather than it is by faith, by waiting for the prophet to come as he was instructed to do. And Samuel, on the other hand, he offers sacrifices too, but he, but he actually offers it wanting to honor God. He offers it wanting to actually ask for God's direction and help to see what he can impart to Saul. And there's a big difference in the heart behind the sacrifices of those two men. Now, what's the difference between faith in religion and true faith in God? Faith in God requires that God be in control. The religious actions don't. You can do an offering whenever you want. You can take communion whenever. You can do any of these ritualistic things whenever you want. But acts of faith require that God be in control. And it usually requires some type of trust on our part that includes some type of risk. Being religious doesn't. That is all on your hands. And in the case of Saul, it was obediently waiting in a very stressful, very panic-laden, very tough situation. And Saul's downfall was a lack of faith and the superstitious belief in religious actions, which is pretty similar to how Eli and his sons viewed the use of the ark in the battle. But, but there is hope in all of this. And in a, in a state where it seemed Israel was helpless, God provided hope. And that's where God works. He works in our helplessness when things seem like they can't get any worse. And this chapter is pretty dark. It's pretty bleak. But the story doesn't just end there. And we'll see how uh, God delivers help in the coming weeks. And we can see from other parts of the Bible how God delivers help in times of need to His people. For instance, Genesis chapter 18. Abraham and Sarah are without child for 24 years, even though God has promised them to have a child. And then we're told that biologically it's impossible for Sarah to have a child. But then she has a son. And in Genesis 18, 14, the Lord Lord asks a rhetorical question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And it was in their helplessness that God delivered. What about Exodus 14, where the Israelites were uh, let go from uh, Egyptian slavery, and then they were stopped by the sea, and then behind them came roaring the Egyptian army coming to slaughter them. They were to- in a totally helpless situation, but it was God who made a way for them through the sea, and He parted, and He provided hope. What about Joshua chapter 3 and 4, where the Jordan overflowed in its banks uh, over uh, on its banks during the harvest, and it was just a mile wide, and Israel was supposed to cross this impassable obstacle? But it was in their helplessness that God delivered and cut off the Jordan upstream so that Israel could go through. Or Judges chapter 7, when Gideon had to face the Midianites. And in verse 7, God said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. God delivered in a helpless situation. You jump several chapters to Judges chapter 16. And we find the judge Samson who was just acting a fool. And he was just acting like a player. You know, he couldn't do any wrong and whatever. And then, and then he got caught and he became weak and his eyes were made useless as he was blinded only to become the en- en- entertainment for the Philistines. And yet through God, he was able to bring that house down. And in all these situations where the, the, circumstances, the circumstances seem so helpless, it was in their state of helplessness that God provided hope and deliverance. And God worked precisely in their times of helplessness, just like He does in our times of helplessness. And it always seems to be the last minute, doesn't it? That's just vintage God. That's just how He does things. It's always the last minute. The psalmist tells us in Psalms chapter 116, verse 6, I was brought low... And he saved me. And we have hope in helplessness. Because we have a God who specializes in providing help in times of need. And we, may, we might experience times of helplessness, but not hopelessness. We may be helpless, but never hopeless. Because our God is loving. I'd like to end with reading Psalm chapter 46 together. I think we have that available on the screen. To the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song for Alamoth, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, just as the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Let's pray. Lord, I ask God that you would Forgive us if we have been apprehensive in our successes, depending on others to fulfill the roles that we are called to fulfill. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to overcome those things. I also ask God that you would work with our rebellious heart. And for those of us who are caught in the reasoning and the rationalizing and trying to build a logical case for sin, that you would uh, give us a heart after your own, just like David's. And I ask, Lord, that if we are religiously walking instead of faithfully walking, that you would change the way that we walk. I pray, Lord, that we would be people of faith, not people of religion, and depending on religion, because you are a living God, and we seek guidance from you. In Jesus' name, amen.